0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me here today. For those of you who may just be listening to the series that I've been doing, Recently. Let me just recap it briefly and then we'll move on into today's material. But over the last few weeks, we've examined the biblical conception of law and the close correspondence that conception of law has to common law and have covered some basic fundamentals of common law and its perversions under the influence of the positivist conception of law that began with Jeremy Bentham. Now, Bentham's positivist view of law was embraced by the French in their late 18th century revolution, the French Revolution, and was ushered into America's jurisprudence under the influence of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in the early 1900s. Now, if some of those terms are unfamiliar to you, because um, you've just joined us, the biblical conception of law is that law is akin to wisdom, and that the law of God is revealed not just as rules that we think of law as today, which is the positivist view of law, but it's it's revealed throughout the whole narrative of Scripture, the Torah was known as part of the Pentateuch, right? Part of the Pentateuch was the Torah, I should say. And, and so part of the law of God is being revealed when it says, in the beginning God created. That's part of the conception of the law of God that now will inform all of the rest that follows, for example. Whereas a positivist view would say the lawmaking body whoever that might happen to be, the Supreme Court or the legislature or Congress said X, and that's the law, period, end of discussion. It's the law because it's the law. But there's some American history at the time of our founding that no one ever told me, and it's helpful to understanding what we need to be doing now. And I want to submit to you the idea that a plan of action that does not consider what we've had, our past, our history, so that we can see what it is that we have perhaps lost in comparison to that and to what we now have, it'll tend not to be a good plan. Because history is not circular but linear. It's moving somewhere, and if we don't know where we've been, we won't know where we are or where we're going. What I'm getting at here and what I want to spend some time on today is that we all have friends who are MAGA people, Make America Great people, and maybe you're one of them. But from those I know, I don't think any of them have a concrete understanding about what made America great. They have general ideas, nebulous ideas. We believed in God. We had prayer in schools, but they don't have a concrete idea of what made America great, at least so far as our legal and civil government structures go. And I suspect they don't really appreciate the tension that existed in the early years of the United States between a worldview and therefore legal structure based on a biblical cosmology, according to the biblical narrative, and that which was determined and in the process of being determined by enlightenment philosophy, where God was minimized and eventually became relegated to an upper story, subjective, emotional, mental experience. And again, I'm not Trying to be critical here because I didn't know these things most of my life either. I'm just being candid about myself and, and what I've observed. But there are two titans of American history, one in civil government and one on the United States Supreme Court, who typified this tension between common law and positive law, between a biblical cosmology and a man centered positivist cosmology, and they struggled between those two. The two figures I have in mind are Justice Joseph Story, the youngest person ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court, who is often considered to be the real juridical philosopher, jurisprudential philosopher behind um, Chief Justice Marshall and Thomas Jefferson, and they were at strong odds with one another. And before I close today, I want to begin to look at some of that because I think you will find it very enlightening and helpful um, to understanding why we are where we are, just just as I did when I began to learn these things. However, before we get to that, and if we don't get to it, then we'll take it up next week, I want to give you some encouragement about thinking of the biblical conception of law, and specifically common law, and beginning to share that with your friends. Because you are liable to be swimming upstream in a river of Christian pessimism. If you begin to talk about common law and returning to the conception of law, that is common law. You'll have folks look at you as if you have three eyes. because They have no clue what you're even talking about. Common law and the biblical conception of law doesn't really fit in a world whose metaphor, whose defining image or picture is the world is is simply that of a machine. And and that's okay because they may be teachable. You can train them up without them having to resist what they've been taught or thought about common law. But you are just as likely to run into those who've heard negative things about common law. And boy, I've run into that. Christians resistant to the idea of common law. You're going to run into those who think it's just old. And I want to prepare you for them because essentially what I have heard in my work in this area for the last several years is, David, you can't go back. Or a Christian brother of mine in the policy world saying, David, you're talking about what the law ought to be, but that's not what it is. As if we shouldn't try as Christians to move the direction of law into what it should be, just work with what it is, right? And I'm reminded of how often God told his people to remember, to remember. And you can't remember what you've not been taught. But in a more modern context, I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that I want to share with you today because I've used it essentially as a lead-in to a speech I've given every once in a while about why I am a progressive. That usually gets people's attention. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. Now, let me just insert here, he's... He's writing this in the 1950s, and, well, we still thought perhaps there was some telos, some end, some destination. Today, we've given up that idea. We've been so consumed into the machine and evolutionary thinking. Just whatever next is is what is, right? But he goes on and says, if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. That's what I want to say to my Christian friends, to accept what is and say, let's argue on the basis of what is, is to answer the fool according to his folly and make him think himself wise, and in essence, we become like him, which was the topic of last week's podcast. Lewis continues, if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about face and walking back to the right road, and in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive Man, there's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, and this is in the 1950s, it's pretty plain that humanity's been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. You see, in, in my view, Going back, going back to the conception of law that is common law, that's akin to the biblical conception of law, it can't be any worse than having the ACLU and federal judges kicking our rear end all the time under a positive law system. I mean, if you're losing, and just this week, Florida lost in federal court over its transgender legislation. Arkansas lost on its... Uh, legislation. Alabama lost on its, and Tennessee's in court now, and the Department of Justice has intervened. So how many times do we need to keep losing before we say, should we try something different? Maybe going back to where we got off and trying to move forward isn't such a bad idea instead of continuing the way in which we're going. But it doesn't mean, and this is something I want to make clear to you that returning to common law and the conception of law that is common law is not going to take us back to the dark ages. You're going to hear that. Oh, you want to take us back to the dark ages. You want to take us back to a time when all women's property became that of a husband when they got married. And, and that's what you, you're you going to hear from two kinds of people. first, those who don't understand the conception of the law that is common law and how it works. And second, you're going to hear from the positive law propagandists who have a vested interest in keeping our nation in a strictly positive legal system. But when you understand common law, you'll know that common law is flexible. It's not returning to the dark ages while holding, to certain fundamental truths about the nature of reality, things about which the law Blackstone would have said it cannot be indifferent to, um, common law lawyers know that common law uses sound judgment and wisdom developed in the crucible of time and experience a, a biblical conception of law to apply the fundamental principles to new things in ways that retain the principle while also adapting the law as need be in regard to those matters of indifference. And I think that's why some Christians, to be honest, are uncomfortable with common law. It requires a mature wisdom that I believe today is in short supply. And it's in part in short supply because we've become accustomed to just having rules, and often we've reduced Christianity to rules so we don't have to exercise a good, clear, and clean conscience, which depends upon wisdom and prudence and knowledge and study and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Just give me a rule. Now, let me give you an example of what I just said. So you'll see how common law both works and how some people twist it and want to make sure we never use common law again in any substantive or real way. And this is really important, so I hope I can get this clear for you. William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the law of England, that the Supreme Court regularly cites as authority for interpreting our Constitution, I mean, they've done it throughout the centuries, okay? They use the common law and Blackstone's commentaries to reverse Roe versus Wade he said, with respect to this issue of going back to the dark ages and women having to give up all rights to property, this is what he said. He said that how title to property was held as between a married man and woman was a matter of indifference to the common law. And so the common law, early on, for the sake of tracing title to property easily and its transference to other people, they put all the property of the woman in the name of her husband, and it was called coverture. But Blackstone writes because times changed; that way of holding title to property was seen to be problematic. So coverture was abolished. But the common law would never have been indifferent as to whether marriage was between one man and one woman. You see that the difference between things that. The law cannot treat as indifferent and those that are indifferent. The common law would never treat as indifferently the issue of man and woman and that relationship to marriage. But how you hold title when you're married? Well, that's to be one way or another, right? They put it in the man, but could have put it all in the woman, arguably. And they could abolish that idea and let them hold all their property equally, which they did. They abolished coverture. Now, I say that so that you won't be convinced by people to stop talking about common law because it's going to return us to the dark ages. Now, I want to flip for a moment and look at how interested persons use and distort the common law for their political, philosophical ends, and they confuse Those things about which law cannot be indifferent with those about which it can be indifferent. And it goes right to the United States Supreme Court and its same-sex marriage decision in Obergefell v. Hodges, June 26, 2015. In seeking to redefine marriage, to abolish the idea that marriage is defined by man and woman, Justice Kennedy wrote for the majority Uh, something I'm going to read to you, and I think you'll see how he perverted the common law's clear distinction between matters of indifference regarding title to property and essential matters. leaves me shaking my head that no state will challenge what he said for the sake of reversing that opinion. Anyway, here's what he wrote. Under the centuries-old doctrine of coverture, which is what I was just talking about in relation to Blackstone, a married man and woman were treated by the state as a single male-dominated entity. Okay, that's sort of right, right? and, and Especially with respect to coverture, which is what he turns to next. As women gained legal, political, and property rights, and as society began to understand that women have their own equal dignity, the law of coverture was abandoned. Yep, Blackstone said it was. So, we can agree with him, let's say, to this point. But now listen to how he ignores Blackstone saying coverture was a matter of indifference. Kennedy writes, these and other developments in the institution of marriage over the past centuries were not mere superficial changes. Rather, they worked deep transformation in its structure, affecting aspects of marriage long viewed by many as essential. Well, if people had come to regard how title to property was held as essential, they had gotten off base. They had not remembered what Blackstone had said. And, and to be honest, we need to be saying, just like in The Princess Bride, if you ever watched the movie, liar, liar, liar. That change was not viewed as essential by Blackstone. And you see what happens when we don't know our history. Now, let me give you another example of why some will say we can't go back and it's too late to go back, and it's the perfect example of why we must go back. When a few Christian lawyers and I came up with the Marital Contract Recording Act, you can find out about it at the Family Action Council of Tennessee's webpage, dot org, FACtennessee.org, FACtennessee.org, and, and got it filed in Tennessee. The positive law only crowd understood its implications perfectly. Now, to appreciate what they said, just briefly, the Marital Contract Recording Act takes the common law conception of marriage and says that if a man and a woman are competent to enter into contracts, such as to buy a plane ticket for their honeymoon and rent a beach condo, well, then they are competent to marry, marriage being viewed at the common law as, as a form of contract with rights and duties without having to first get permission or a license from the state. So instead of getting a license to marry, they simply file an affidavit with the designated government office swearing that they're married. You see, it takes the state out of the creation of marriage and the state as a means of helping the married couple prove they're married. Now, here's what a pro-LGBT lawyer for Rewire a magazine, I think it's a magazine said about the proposal and I'm quoting specifically defining marriage between one man and one woman as something the government then has an obligation to recognize as a valid union sets up the stage for Obergefell being rendered meaningless. Now notice what the lawyer is saying. She understands that the act is saying there's something real out there about marital relationships that the government doesn't create but must give way to. It has an obligation to recognize. This is what common law is. It's a recognition of given realities. And if we're not in a world that needs to return to reality, well, I I don't know what other kind of world that we're in and the common law is the only way back. But then the writer of the article that quoted the lawyer wrote this, quote, This really isn't even that complex of a plan. Step one, create an alternative form of marriage that excludes same-sex couples. That's what the Marital Contract Recording Act says. It says the only people that the common law recognized as being able to marry was a man and a woman, so only a man and a woman can file this affidavit proving they're married. Step two, she writes, get rid of the regular marriage licenses so that the straights-only alternative is the only way to get married in Tennessee. But because Christian lawyers and policy advocates and ministers are so steeped in positive law, so steeped in the idea there has to be a statute and a government license for a marriage to be legal, it's been difficult to find anyone who gives the act a second glance. I mean, big-name organizations in the policy world. But the other side knows that this is the only thing being put forward that would undo their whole show. It is a statement that law does not come just from man, and there are some realities that man must acknowledge. That's the Christian cosmos. That's what we should be wanting. Well, now, in these closing moments, let me turn to a bit of the history I mentioned about whether common law or positive law would frame our legal system at the founding of our country. And I'm drawing this from a book by Joseph McClellan entitled Joseph's Story and the American Constitution. If you want to know more about natural law and common law and the changes that were taking place from the time of Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century to the early years of our country, then it's it's really a great book. And, and um, I think it's... Um, accessible to non-lawyers. Uh, you know, your uh, 10th grader may not get it, uh, but but I think a, a person of, of good education should be able to follow along without getting tied up in legalese, let's put it that way. So um, in the time I have left today, I'm just going to tease this history that I want us to look at more and what was shifting and changing and taking place in our cosmology that created this war between Joseph Story and Thomas Jefferson. So McClellan wrote this. The common law around which American revolutionaries had rallied in the struggle against England became almost overnight an object of public scorn. (laughs) <laughs> so we're talking about the rights of Englishmen, right? We even put into our Constitution the right of life, liberty, and property, which came from the common law, right? But, but he's saying while, while that rallied the revolutionaries to fight against England because we were denied our rights, the, the attitude flipped. So just to give you evidence of that, I'm going to quote from a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a judge, Tyler. Quote, I deride with you the ordinary doctrine that we brought with us from England, the common law rights. This narrow notion was a favorite in the first moments of rallying to our rights against Great Britain. But it was that of men who felt their rights before they had thought of their explanation. The truth is that we brought with us the rights of men, of expatriated men. And where have we heard the idea of the rights of men but the French philosophers who undergirded and fueled the flames of the French Revolution? And I would submit that Mr. Jefferson was wrong. Men had been in a perpetual conversation about the source and the explanation of their rights. And Jefferson was wanting to break it off from the common law and the biblical cosmology under it for human law and the rights of men. And we're going to look more at that next week and how that worked itself out in history to where we are today. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.